The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations from listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely online at kopn.org. Thank you. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today I am honored to welcome my guest, Dr. Richard Raymond. He is the former Undersecretary for Food Safety at the U.S. Department of Agriculture, where he served from 2005 to 2008. He now works as a food safety and public health consultant. Dr. Raymond graduated from the University of Nebraska Medical School with distinction and had longtime family practices in Nebraska, where he also served as the state's chief medical officer. During his tenure at USDA, Dr. Raymond led initiatives that resulted in substantial policy changes for the Food Safety and Inspection Service, including the decision to publish the names of retailers that sold recalled meat. Today, we'll be reflecting back on Dr. Raymond's years at USDA and take a deep dive into food recalls. Welcome, Dr. Raymond. Thank you. I want to start this conversation out with a very simple question. How does a family practice physician become the top food safety official at USDA? Well, it's a pretty simple story. I practiced in rural Nebraska 17 years, went to Omaha and set up a family practice residency program. After 10 years, the University of Nebraska Medical Center consolidated with my hospital and said they were going to take over the residency program. So I suddenly was without a job. And it's a small state population-wise. And, and so word got around, hey, Raymond's changing jobs again. And, and the governor called me up and said, I need a chief medical officer. Are you interested? And I said, well, I need to work. So I went down to Lincoln the next day and interviewed with the governor. He and I hit it off. I was his chief medical officer. He became the secretary for the Department of Agriculture six years later. And about four weeks after he left, I got a phone call, said, your old governor wants you to come and work for him at the USDA. And I said, I don't know anything about food safety. And the guy that called me said, he said you'd say that. But he said to tell you, you didn't know anything about public health either when you came to work at Nebraska. So come on. So that's how I got to D.C. It was my connection with the secretary. Right. It's all about who you know. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Well, I want to say that I personally appreciate medical doctors being in these key positions, because as you show in a slide, when you give food safety talks, you have a slide of yourself holding your grandson. And it really is a great picture to show who is at greatest risk for foodborne illness, and that is the elderly and the very young. And you had an amazing time to be at USDA because you were there when our country experienced the largest ground beef recall. Do you want to share what happened during that time? Melinda, I have to ask you, are you referring to Tops or to Hallmark Westland? I'm referring to Hallmark Westland. Okay. Thank the reason I ask is that wasn't just ground beef. That was all ground beef products produced by that company over a two-year period of time. Okay. Not just ground beef, but it was the largest meat recall in history, 140 million plus pounds. Wow. Yeah. 140 plus million pounds. And before you explain what happened, you know, as a dietitian, I look at that as, especially somebody who works in the field of sustainability, I think of all of the loss, the loss of the livestock, the loss of the natural resources, the incredible amount of packaging 
that goes into any kind of food production. And so it's really a bigger picture story than just the recall. But let's go back. Tell me what happened during this recall with Westland Hallmark. Well, Westland Hallmark was caught mishandling what's called downer cows. These were old dairy cows who were quite weak and feeble and went down to the ground and couldn't get back up. And by law, they cannot enter the feed system because of the fear of mad cow disease. But this company decided to use forklifts and chains and and other ways to drag these cows, push these cows into the slaughter facility so they wouldn't waste that meat, which is A, illegal, B, producing meat that has not been properly inspected because all cattle have to be inspected in motion by a veterinarian out in the holding pens to make sure they don't show any sign of mad cow disease. So once we found out that that was happening and confirmed that it had been happening not on a daily basis, but it had been happening over time for two years, we had no choice but to recall that meat for lack of proper inspection. It was not high risk to the public, but we couldn't say that it was zero risk. So it became the largest recall. And to make it more, I don't know, interesting is the right word, but more front page news is this was the largest supplier to the national school lunch program. Right. So lots of children could have been at risk. So I'm curious to know then with regard to recalls, and this is such a huge one, what happens to that recalled beef? Well, first of all, we don't get it all back. Of course, 140 million pounds, a lot of that had probably been consumed or discarded because of use by dates, so forth. But the meat that is recalled, you then have basically the company that recalled it. And by the way, all these recalls are always voluntary by the companies. And it goes back to the company. And depending what the recall was for, they can relabel the package. They can cook the meat to kill any pathogens that might have been found. They can rework the meat to make it more acceptable, or they can simply destroy it by incinerating it. In this case, you can't relabel or cook or rework it. So this meat was all destroyed. Everything that was returned was destroyed. So it went to a landfill or or it was incinerated? I could not answer that for you for that particular company. I do know that generally speaking, we try to avoid sending meat to landfill because unfortunately there are some people that will use the landfill to help find food to put on their table at night. I mean, that sounds awful. But there are some folks that do that on a regular basis. And so if that meat has any chance of having a pathogen in it that will cause human illness, we don't want anyone to be able to access it. So it probably was incinerated. Right. But I don't know for sure. Yeah. Well, let's go back and talk about the major reasons for recalls. I'm aware because I signed up for the Food Safety Inspection Service recall announcements, which I get on a fairly regular basis, which is really what alerted me to the enormity of the problem. And anybody can sign up and I'll provide a link for our listeners. But you find out what are the reasons for recalls. So adulterants, what fits under the adulterant category? Basically, you're going to have two things under the adulterant. And one is bacterial contamination, most commonly listeria, but also E. coli and clostridium can be factors there. And the other adulterant can be foreign objects. Sometimes we find pieces of chipped plastic or pieces of chipped metal from the production process. So I would say those are the two big adulterants or bacterial contamination and foreign objects. And between those two, they make up for about 35 to 40% of all recalls. Okay. Next, 
allergens. 40%. 40% of recalls. And tell me how that might happen. Improper labeling is generally it. The company forgets on the list of, of products contained, they'll forget to mention peanuts or dairy products or something that people can be highly allergic to. And if they're improperly labeled, then they're taken off the market. Now, those products can be relabeled and resold just by changing the label to include the, the potential allergens that people need to be aware of. Sure. Well, there's so much discussion about food waste yeah. and its impact on greenhouse gas emissions that I wanted to explore the whole issue of what happens to this recalled food. Okay. Another reason for a recall might be import violation. Yeah. Very, very low incidence, but there are one or two known countries who try to sneak uh, certain products in that are not on our list of products that can be imported to the U.S. because of ethnicity, because of certain restaurants that cater to a certain segment of our population that can't get these products legally. So that does happen, but it's not a big problem. Our import inspection system is really quite good. Almost all products have to go through a very limited number of, they can't be flown in on an airplane, for instance. I'm talking meat and poultry now. I'm not talking FDA products, but meat and poultry all have to come through ports of entry. For Canada and Mexico, of course, that would be across the border. But for all other countries, they have to come by boat. And so we do a pretty darn good job of inspecting all imports. That's good to know. Okay. And I'm looking now at the Food Safety and Inspection Service website. And I went back and I looked at the data that was most recent that I had access to, and that was for the entire year of 2022. And so I'm looking at the reasons for recalls. Another one was produced without inspection. Yeah, that's another very low rate, but it's 2 to 3% of recalls over each year. If you look at through the FSS records over many years, you, you'll find it's less than 5%, but it's there. And why people, why companies think they can do that, I've never figured that one out. It's quite often a small, it's not big companies, they, they know better than that, but it's generally a small company that wants to sell to a local restaurant or to a school or something like that. They, they just want to try to skip that step. Right. And, it, and it's just crazy. And then sometimes the lack of inspection can also, if it does come through the border without inspection, that's going to probably fall into that same category because it didn't get the border inspection. Sure. Okay. Well, it looks like USDA FSIS does a pretty good job in protecting the public. But during your tenure, your legislation influence faced a lot of opposition, but you wanted to make sure that the names of retailers that sold recalled meat for any reason, that consumers would find out where that recalled meat was sold. But you faced a lot of opposition to that. Why? Generally referred to as proprietary information, the companies did not want their competitors to know who they were selling their product to, number one. Number two, the Grocery Manufacturer Association did not want the public to know that their members had sold perhaps tainted meat or improperly labeled meat, et cetera. I mean, it was it was both the the animal egg industry and, and the grocery industry just did not want this publicity. And I, I'll go back. You mentioned I was chief medical officer at Nebraska for six and a half years. And during that time, we received a notice from the USDA that they were recalling 100,000 pounds of ground beef in Nebraska. Did me absolutely zero bit of good. They didn't tell me what city, what town what stores, 
I couldn't do anything to alert the public other than tell 1.6 million people there's 100,000 pounds of ground beef being recalled. And if it had certain mark of the plant number on the package, then you should get rid of it. Well, most people buy ground beef and use it that night or the next day. They don't still have the package, but they might have leftover chili or frozen meatloaf or whatever. And if they knew that their grocery store was the one that had the ground beef recalled, they might get rid of the frozen product. It made perfect sense to me, but man, that was a that was an industry fight. We we got it done, right. but it took the whole three and a half years I was there. <laughs> yeah, that's such a shame. But thank you for that because, you know, it's something that I just took for granted that I would have that information. And it's really critical in protecting yeah. public health. And, yeah. you know, I love going to the FSIS recall site and finding out specifically what was recalled and why and how much. So let's go back to the 2022 figures for just one moment, okay. because it's kind of astounding to me. So all recalls in the entire year of 2022, there were 45 recalls. And the number of pounds recalled, and this is meat and poultry, 1,769,556. Most of those recalls were in a class one category. Can you tell me what those different classes mean? Sure. Class one means there's a potential for immediate threat to the public's health. It's contaminated with E. coli or listeria or the improper labeling it may have allergens there's something there that endangers the public health and that is an accelerated recall the fsas inspectors will be in those stores within three days to make sure that product is off the shelf and start checking how much is coming back from consumers etc okay. that that's a high risk uh, the, uh, level two is what we did with hallmark westland we can't say there's zero risk but we feel the risk is very minimal. Therefore, it's it's a much lower level as far as the number of public health alerts, the number of announcements. The inspectors might be in those stores in five to seven days to see if the product's off the shelf because we really don't feel that the public is in any great threat. But we can't say zero. Now, level three means there's no threat to the public health, but there is a problem. And I'll give you a couple examples real quickly. One that, that I was involved in was a, a major company was put a label on their poultry product that it was raised without antibiotics. That product was not raised without antibiotics, and it gave them an unfair advantage over their competitors by making it look like their product was better because it wasn't raised with antibiotics, but it really did. We made them recall that product, but it was the level three. because The public was not in danger. Right. It was a competitive edge. It was lying. That's what it was. Right, let's, exactly. Let's put it bluntly, to gain an edge. And so that's what a level three would be. Okay. Thank you for clarifying that. I need to take one break. I want to remind our listeners that if you're just joining us, you're tuned into Food Sleuth Radio. We are joined today by Dr. Richard Raymond. He is the former Undersecretary for Food Safety at the U.S. Department of Agriculture. And he was there between 2005 and 2008. He now works as a food safety and public health consultant. And he has written some entertaining and interesting blog posts for several publications I've got the Food Safety News blog in front of me now, and the one that you wrote that grabbed my attention, Dr. Raymond, it was titled, Let Us Count the Ways the Feds Have Failed at Food Safety, and it had to do with the E. coli 0157H7 outbreak linked to pre-cut romaine lettuce. What happened there? Uh, the one that really 
jumps at me even more than that incident was baby spinach. But the pre-cut romaine lettuce followed that. But in 2006, we had a, a large outbreak of E. coli infections that turned out to be from baby spinach from the Salinas Valley, California, was packaged. Right. And, and the amazing thing about that was until that time, we just generally felt that E. coli 0157 infections were coming from contaminated beef. And this one, because of the things we had set in place after Jack in the Box, the new investigative methods, we became very apparent that we had an outbreak in Wisconsin, an outbreak in Oregon of E. coli 015787. They both had the exact same fingerprint, DNA fingerprint, from something called PFGE, which CDC developed after Jack in the Box. But that says that's not fresh ground beef because you don't ship fresh ground beef that far. And so it could be frozen ground beef, but the investigators quickly found out nobody had eaten any frozen ground beef, and there were several vegetarians within those outbreaks. So they had to change their whole question. And like within just a couple of weeks, it was obvious that it was it was the spinach. And within another week, it was they had the brand name. And initially, the FDA told people don't eat spinach, and then they said don't eat spinach from this brand. And so they narrowed it down probably within three weeks, which was an amazing epidemiological investigative success. And then what happened, what followed because of the awareness that green leafy vegetables may be contaminated with E. coli 0157, investigations changed. And all of a sudden, we started seeing all this pre-cut romaine lettuce, which probably prompted that particular blog that said lettuce, that eating pre-cut green leafy vegetables was not exactly safe without thorough washing, because you don't usually cook these. Meat, you can cook it and kill the bacteria, but lettuce is obviously generally consumed raw. And I just was writing a blog about this a couple of weeks ago. In fact, to be honest with you, back in somewhere around 2005, 50% of E. coli outbreaks were confirmed to be related to beef, 12% to green leafy vegetables, and most of the rest unknown. Three years ago, 67% related to green leafy vegetables and 20% to beef. Yeah, I mean, it was a watershed moment that changed the way we looked at that particular bacterium and foodborne illnesses. It changed the world the way we look at it. Yes. Now, long term, the investigation found this ranch rented this land to a spinach farmer, and they had a huge herd of Angus cattle on a hill up above where the spinach field was. And as my friend Nancy Donlan told me once, if you investigate an E. coli outbreak long enough and hard enough, you will eventually bump into a cow. So right. that's where E. coli comes from, is the intestines of cattle. And the Salinas Valley, unfortunately, got a, a bad reputation for having a lot of cattle and a lot of green leafy vegetables cohabitating farms and ranches. And that's the FDA has to make some changes. And we don't have much control on, on, on farm practices, to be honest with you, unfortunately. But somehow we've got to get it because this has got to stop. Well, you bring up a good point, and that is there's USDA that oversees meat and poultry, and then there's FDA that oversees everything else, and then there's on-farm practices. Who oversees the on-farm practices? Basically nobody. Wow. I mean, OSHA might have something to do with farm safety and and the EPA probably has something to do with water contamination, things like that. But as far as how close the feedlot could be to a spinach farm, you know, that kind of stuff is there's not not much going on. There's not much control over what goes on in feedlots, for instance. So I want to go back just one real quick. You said the USDA has meat, poultry, and egg products. They now also have catfish. 
Oh. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> just catfish? Just catfish, because the senator from Mississippi wanted to protect his catfish farmers from imports coming from Asia. So, wow. Yeah. And what I've written blogs about that I love writing about is the USDA still doesn't have bison. Because when the Federal Meat Inspection Act was written in 1906, it included sheep and goats and cows and horses and pigs, the four-legged animals that we consume. But we didn't eat bison back then to speak of. But now the bison's becoming a very common commodity in the grocery stores. That's regulated by the FDA. And in my blogs, I say, you know, a catfish, I, I think a bison looks a lot more like a steer to me than a catfish does. <laughs> right. Well, it's so interesting. Who monitors the rest of the fish then? FDA. FDA. Okay. Yeah. Good to know. Well, it's very interesting to pull back the curtain on all of these nuanced pieces of regulation that most people have no idea. You know, I no. think what happens is that we go to the supermarket and we just assume that everything there is going to be safe and that some agency, some organization is protecting us. And as you mentioned very wisely, actually, in your Let Us Count the Ways blog, which is why I also wanted to bring it forth, is because it also matters how we handle foods at home. And if I have raw meat in my refrigerator, I make sure that it is absolutely kept apart from green leafy vegetables and fruits and things that I'm not going to be cooking. So some of those recommendations that are on the label now for meat and poultry are really important for consumers to follow. So even if a piece of meat is contaminated, we can do more at home. You know, people that like to say, well, I like my hamburger rare. Maybe I should ask you this without putting you on the spot. Would you ever eat a rare hamburger? Well, not anymore. Right. I, I must admit that maybe back in my college days, we used to we used to think that was pretty cool. Yeah. But back then, we weren't mass-producing ground beef. We are now either. But it's, it still was stupid to do back then. But no, I... I use I faithfully use a food thermometer when I cook ground beef and I treat it like poison when it's in the kitchen. I mean I handle it extremely safely. I wash my hands every time I make a patty and before I grab a hold of the ketchup or whatever. I we I love hamburger. I'm not saying I don't. Right. But I just treat it a whole lot differently than I did before I got smarter. Exactly. Okay. You mentioned Jack in the Box. Is there anything that you want to bring forth for our listeners? to know about the significance of that incident? Oh, we don't have time, but I'll try to speak real quickly, Melinda, and make it short. In 1993, Jack in the Box, four kids, four really young children died, and over 600, mostly children, got infected. And a lot of those ended up with permanent kidney damage. And that was the first time we really realized as a public, you can die from eating a hamburger. It was undercooked. The recommendation at that time from the FDA was to cook your ground beef to 140 degrees. It's now cook it to 160 degrees. That's one of the things that changed. But we just we found out that this we've got a problem. And the, the biggest change that happened was shortly afterwards, a guy named Mike Taylor, who was the acting administrator for the Food Safety Inspection Service, went to the American Meat Institute's annual convention and said, I'm declaring E. coli an adulterant. Now, we talked earlier on this broadcast about what recalls are caused by and the adulterants is one and one of the adulterants is bacterial contamination if it's been declared an adulterant he declared e0157 an adulterant which immediately said if we tested that in the in the plant that plant was shut down and all that meat to produce that day was going to be recalled and so the industry had to change their way of thinking they decided that 
food safety was no longer proprietary. They would share their best practices for trying to get rid of E. coli 1J7. And, and collectively, they made our ground beef and other beef products tremendously safer because of Jack in the Box. Mm. Unfortunately, people had to die to do it. But I've got a list of 20 things that I blogged on that, that changed that month, including an attorney named Bill Marler, who represented some of these young victims because he lived in Seattle and Seattle Children's Hospital had these victims and he made a name for himself and he's he's probably caused more changes in food safety than any legislator or bureaucrat like myself has done, just the fear of being sued by him. That's right. And he started Food Safety News yes, and it is yes. one of my favorite resources and I will provide a link for our listeners for that as well. You know, we talk about the connection between if you're going to find E. coli on lettuce or spinach, you're going to go back and you're going to find a cow. Just so our listeners understand, how does meat get contaminated mostly? I assume you're talking about E. coli right now. Yes. Okay, because, I mean, salmonella is a whole different ballgame. E. coli is in our colons, but not E. coli 0157. That's a particular strain of E. coli that is in the colons of ruminants. Ruminants meaning sheep and, and cattle, not chickens and not pigs. Ruminants, the ones that regurgitate the cud and, and chew it some more. And, and E. coli is in those intestines. And generally speaking, when a steer or a cow goes into a slaughter plant, they actually stitch the bunghole shut so that those contaminants won't spread when they remove the colon. But the problem is, at least I think a problem is that these cattle, a lot of them have been standing in feedlots for four to six months getting fattened up quicker on corn than they would on grass. And there's a lot of manure in those feedlots. And so they're walking manure and their tails swipe down in the manure and then swipe up on their hides, on their carcasses. And then when they go to the slaughter facility, those hides are pulled, pulled viciously. I mean, they're jerked off of their skin. And when they do that, if there's E. coli or manure on those hides, it kind of sprays like a film and can contaminate the carcass of the, of the steer right next to it that just had its hide pulled which might have been a sterile steer, but there's fecal contaminant containing E. coli 0157 on that neighboring hide, and and it spreads. And then these carcasses bump into each other as they move their way down the chain, so they continue to cross-contaminate. So it's basically the hide pole that creates the problem, I think. Yeah, that's very interesting. We just have a minute left. I want to just give the floor to you. Is there anything in particular you want to make sure our listeners know yeah, I, I think the the main thing, and it has probably very little to do with recalls, but we've touched on it, is that it's almost impossible for the industry, the poultry industry, the, the, the beef industry, the pork industry as a whole to guarantee you that your that your raw chicken, your raw beef, your raw pork is not contaminated with, with a bacteria. It, it's just impossible. If it's cooked, it should be guaranteed. But right. it, but if it's raw, it, we cannot guarantee it. And that's why you, you mentioned the labeling containing cooking and handling instructions. That's all relatively new also from FSIS, the food safety and inspection system. I like to say it's food safety and inspection. It used to just be an inspection system. We're now trying to educate the consumers that you have to treat those products as if they were contaminated. Most of them are not. Treat them all as if they were, handle them safely, and cook them to the proper temperature, which we can get into if we have time. If we don't, it's published everywhere. 
That's great. And again, I will provide a link to the USDA's FSIS website where people can find that information and so much more. We've got to close. I want to thank our listeners for joining us. Remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemelgarn for KOPN in Columbia, Missouri. But most of all, I want to thank my guest, Dr. Richard Raymond, former Undersecretary for Food Safety at the U.S. Department of Agriculture. He is an editor for two food safety blogs, and he contributes to Food Safety News. He is a food safety and public health consultant, and I am lucky to have had you on to share such wise insights with us. Thank you so much. Enjoyed it.